Who's here at the review panel for the first time? Wow, oh. marvelous, good. It's lovely to see new faces here. It can become a little bit of a club, but um, it's, it's, it's fabulous to see our audience expanding. So the review panel, it's simplicity itself. We've all had a chance to go see four exhibitions. Uh, we'll, we'll show some, a little movie for the first two shows we're going to discuss. Uh, then the panelists will uh, discuss those two shows. We'll open it up to the audience to get some uh, feedback from you guys and then repeat the exercise for the last two exhibitions. And then um, critically charged and physically tired as we will be from this uh, uh, marathon of close attention and uh, analytical reading of these exhibitions. We'll all go over the road for a glass of wine and perhaps even a slice of pizza, is it? <laughs> yes, a slice of pizza and a glass of wine. <laughs> Cheese platter. Cheese platter, okay. <laughs> uh, it's kind of academic. There'll be something nice to nibble upon. <laughs> something good to nibble upon. And um, uh, we're very generously hosted by the art committee of One Grand Army Plaza. It's that uh, white Richard Meyer designed apartment house on the corner of uh, Eastern Parkway and uh, Grand Army Plaza. So there are plenty of regulars who know the way there. Just look out for us. It's a 30-second walk and um, reception after the event. So my first duty and pleasure is to introduce um, this evening's speakers. Uh, we have one neophyte and two regulars, or well, not quite regulars. Veterans? But, uh, veterans is a good word. Yes, veterans. <laughs> There are no benefits, but you are veterans, yes. So, Sharmista Ray um, is um, an artist, uh, as well as a curator and a writer. Uh, uh, she has a, a fellowship at the Elizabeth Foundation for the Arts. Um, she is um, a regular writer in Hyperallergic. Uh, she's just returned from the fairs in Miami, which she covered for artcritical.com. And um, she's off tomorrow morning to India, uh, where she's used to run a gallery and has curated quite a number of significant exhibitions. Uh, Faye Hirsch is um, a contributing editor at Art in America magazine and also writes for um, Art in Print. She is the author recently of a monograph on Lois Dodd in the series of um, Lund Humphrey's um, books on contemporary painters edited by Barry Schwabsky, another regular on this panel. And uh, she uh, teaches at Purchase, um, SUNY Purchase. And Robert C. Morgan uh, is, is a practicing artist and uh, uh, a renowned um, uh, critic and scholar, author of books on conceptual art uh, and uh, with a burgeoning uh, a particular interest in contemporary Chinese ink um, drawing. He's been a, 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 he, he spends a lot of time in Beijing uh, researching that subject. Uh, Robert uh, writes for, um, for Art Critical uh, and for, um, he's also the New York editor of um, Asia Art News. Art News. And, um, uh, 
I think that gives us a good sense of who's going to be talking to us this evening. Thank you very much. Please welcome your panel. Right, well, these nice chairs swivel round, uh, panellists, and we can now look at the first movie. British sculptor Phyllida Barlow, who represented her country at the Venice Biennale in 2017, only truly began to pick up an international following in her 60s after she retired from teaching. She was a professor at the Slade and counted Rachel Whiteread among her students. Barlow is known for her use of humble materials, often detritus from the building trade, and she often works at a colossal scale. She admitted to an interviewer at The Guardian in 2016, maybe I don't think enough about beauty in my work because I'm so curious about other qualities, abstract qualities of time, weight, balance, rhythm, collapse and fatigue versus the more upright, dynamic notions of maybe posture. Philadelphia-born, Brooklyn-based artist Penelope Umbrico is also no stranger to the monolithic as it intersects with the ubiquitous. Her photo-based practice is often concerned with built-in obsolescence and endless reproducibility. As the press release from Brick puts it, Monument is made up of several interrelated elements. At the heart of the exhibition is a wall of broken and semi-functional LCD TVs and computer monitors screening the news, underscoring that both current events and the screens are the result of something gone wrong. Behind this massive wall is what Umbrico refers to as a nolling table, where visitors are invited to bring their unwanted electronic screen-based devices to be disassembled and arranged for a photograph. So, Barlow, uh, a late blossomer, the uh, director of Tate Modern, uh, Francis Morris, compares her to Louise Bourgeois as this kind of sleeper who, um, uh, late in life, is being recognized as a giant within sculpture. I'm not quite sure I buy into that thesis, but I found this a really invigorating exhibition to look at. What do you think, Faye? Um, so I thought that there were many beautiful pieces in the show many interesting pieces. Um, this is really bad. Can I just take it off and talk normally? Yeah, yeah way better. Okay, good. Um, so again, I thought, I thought there were many really interesting and dynamic pieces in the show. It's called Tilt. And in fact, almost all the pieces in the show do just that. And one is reminded of, um, of sort of conceptualist practices of the 60s where it was an action rather than object. Um, I had a big problem with the, with the installation of this show. Um, I thought it was, it was really pretty crowded and that those are works that, that really need sight lines. You know, you need, some, you need some space. And I found myself 
getting really confused looking at one and seeing the other right behind it. Um, I, I don't think it was a happy installation of the work, but I do think that um, there were the, the big piece with the ladder and the shadow of concrete, I thought was um, the threshold, which is a big theme of hers. I thought that was a, a very effective piece. And I do love her use of materials. Um, the way you, you look at something and think it looks like um, like let's say steel and it's actually cardboard and plaster and, um, and, and that kind of provisional way she uses paint. Um, the provisional ways that the sculptures are postured, are positioned. Um, you feel a, a real dynamism in that, in that, um, in that way of, 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 of making them. So I like the provisionality. I like the idea of transitions from uh, one from upright to tilted, from one space to another, um, but I did find the the presentation quite confusing. Right, right. Um, maybe a case could be made for the crowded um, installation, however, Shamista, uh, because um, uh, in a way the works tilt into each other, and 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 the, the sense of um, urban grit comes across with um, uh, a less. Uh, dignified or graceful installation. Did you mm -hmm. have trouble with the installation? What did you feel? That's interesting that you're saying that now because I'm thinking about it. I mean, there were other things that um, kind of bothered me. I mean, in the sense, I mean, I, I love the show. I mean, I, I love the works. Okay. Um, there's a sense of tactility. There's a surface. There's this rough-hewn quality, which is kind of dirty and messy. Um, and I really like it when she pushes it in that direction. And when uh, there's this tension between things coming together and falling apart, I mean, I think that's when her, you know the individual works really work for me. Um, in this exhibition, um, even though I liked those qualities, I felt that sometimes things were too literally tilting, you know, and um, it wasn't, it, it just wasn't projecting a metaphor for me. I mean, I wanted there to be a bit more poetry there where I was kind of getting into this, um, you know, this sensibility rather than being told that something tilts. It was a little bit too literal for me in that sense. Um, the crowdedness, crowdedness didn't bother me because I think that, um, one of the things that she tries to do is create the sense of discomfort. Uh, there's this real kind of tension between three elements in her work for me. There is the, um, the sculpture, of course, the, its relationship to architecture. And a lot of times she actually worked outside in this large scale and she didn't have the money at the time. And so she really was using these impoverished materials. And there was a sense of rejection and abjectness to the work that I really loved. And now kind of seeing it in this really polished space and almost as unity objects it almost feels too finished for me you know and I think that is what you know I came away with and I think that kind of bothered me a little bit I mean I think it's a it's a tremendous installation and it looks beautiful but for an artist that actually kind of has rejected those notions of beauty um, I think there's this kind of growing into the sense of a monument that she's actually tried to reject and that kind of made me you know that kind of felt gave me this kind of slight ambivalent feeling at the end do, do you feel Robert that that there's um, a kind of existentialist um, sense of forlorn and dejected and um, experiential, or, or do you think actually these are quite, despite their tilting a bit and the garish colors, they're actually in a way rather traditional modernist sculpture. I wonder um, how, how we should, whether we should be overly conditioned by uh, 
a notion of their contemporaneity and whether they're actually uh, should just be enjoyed in this kind of formal abstract way. What, what, what's your, how do you negotiate looking at sculpture? David, I want to nature? pick up on uh, Charmista's uh, point at the end. I don't think she's rejecting beauty, even if she says that. I think she's displacing it. Uh, because I think to focus on beauty, this is something I share with my students quite often, to focus on beauty is impossible, okay? I, I remember seeing you know, work from uh, middle Europe a number of years ago where all the teachers were communists and they had to focus on beauty because they couldn't talk about politics, okay? But I think it's a displacement and I think that's what's interesting. I, I think it's a displacement in the sense of maybe Rauschenberg's early work. Uh, mm -hmm. to a certain extent, okay? Now, I, I think we have to keep in mind that much of her work is about a particular space. Therefore, some of the crowdedness may relate to that because some of those, I think, are designated for particular spaces, uh, which I think is very interesting uh, that she's pulled them out of those spaces and put them in this context. Although there's many small pieces that uh, I'm sure were not for a particular space. And uh, she's used the, uh, the gallery as a way of uh, uh, making them non-predictable in terms of how they look. Uh, you don't get the sense that she's predicting anything in the work. You get the sense that it's instantaneous. And I love that. Uh, I think it's a great quality that's uh, in the work. Uh, sorry, I'm talking to my colleagues and not to you. I should be talking to you. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, this, this is my feeling that uh, she's between painting and sculpture. I don't know how many of you have seen the show. Any of you by any chance? It's a show well worth seeing. Uh, she's between painting and sculpture, and what, is, what I find interesting is it, she's using painting to make sculpture, okay? I mean, painting not just painted surfaces, but she's thinking painting. I'm, I'm sure of this. She's using paint as a sculptural element. She is using paint. Mm, that's not exactly what I'm saying. Paint that's not exactly painting. what I'm saying. Painting, no. then. I, I, I think that these works, often they look like they could be paintings, but they're not quite because she knows they're going to be in a three-dimensional arena of some sort. And she's got that idea of space very clear in her mind that she's going to fill, okay? The, Cognizance of space is really incredible. Now, uh, one of her early professors told her that uh, never use a nail unless you're going to reinvent it. I think that that was good and very clear um, advice. Really? Yeah. I'm not sure what it means, but... Uh, <laughs> but um, do you know what it might mean? Uh, I don't know what that might mean, and I also am not sure I agree about the painting, yeah. the priority of painting, nor do I think it's necessarily the most fruitful way of talking about this. But I do want to get back to the idea that they're meant for particular spaces. I think, in a way, this installation um, of these sometimes very impressive works. Um, I don't know what or where they were intended for originally, but there is the quality in this exhibition of them being kind of souvenirs rather than really occupying um, some kind of significant space. Um, we, have, I, I don't, we have several works in the show which yeah. are clearly ma uh, maquettes for others in the mm. show, don't we? Yeah, there, there are, well, there are smaller versions smaller of versions. work. I, I don't know that she considers them the to be maquettes. The ontology might be different. Yeah. They may have been 
commentary afterthoughts uh, in a smaller scale of a similar idea. Yeah, That's true. but um, but I I guess I I'm that extraction of the meaningful space in which these might have been placed. Now, I think the smaller works that are on pedestals are clearly intended for a gallery. Yes. You know, th those are supposed to be there. Mm. Um, but, um, and, and some of them are really quite marvelous, um, those, those smaller pieces. Um, I, just, I just, it just felt like, a, like something had been extracted from somewhere else and brought into the gallery as kind of something. You know, it's a problem I have a lot in Chelsea, you know. Um, <laughs> what's for sale here, you know? It, it, it feels a little bit like trinkets to me, and, and I think it does it a real disservice, um, because I think the work has a real power. I think that um, those surfaces are lovely. The, the space, that when you move around them, they, they change. They're, they're, yes, and I do think, getting back to your point, we are dealing in a lot of ways with a very old-fashioned modernist sculptor, and I don't, I mean, I, I don't, I can see the comparison to Louise Bourgeois, but it's so very oh, different. Oh yeah, I think you know? I know. Uh, in fairness, Francis, Francis Morris was only mentioning Louise Bourgeois in relation to uh, a late comer, a late comer, an yeah. artist working under the radar. Well, there's um, a little bit yeah. of. There's a, that's that's yeah. that's all she was saying. I mean, I think David, if I might just add here that. Um, I think what you pointed out about these being kind of traditional modernist sculptures, I mean, I think that comes across in this exhibition, but I don't think that's the sculptor that she is, no. you know? Yes. Um, if you see some of her earlier, not earlier work, but work before she became kind of super famous and she was picked up by a big gallery, I mean, there is this sense of things just kind of almost, to use your word, provisionally coming together in this way, yeah. and I should talk to the audience as well. Um, but there's a sense of things just kind of, it's almost like these parts just came together and they're you know, there's something uncomfortable about them. They're, you know, that these parts are not supposed to be fitting together, but they do. Are they going to fall apart? And, you know, the hinges, like, they're really makeshift. And, and there's something about the process of thinking that I really enjoyed in those. I mean, I could see her kind of thinking and challenging herself with materials and um, wanting to break or displace a sense of beauty um, within them. Like, she really didn't want that. And, but of course, I mean, that's what, ha you know, it's not that it always happens, but, you know, when you get kind of co-opted by a big gallery, you know, what happens to the work? And I think that um, if I do have a lamentation here, I think that these do look like, you know, traditional modernist sculptures, but I don't think that's what they were intended to be. I don't think that's a, that's, that's a sculptor that she is. I think that uh, she is yes, actually I, I, not object-oriented in that sense. Right, not object-oriented, but um, um, I think they are in dialogue with sculpture in an, Absolutely, in an intelligent yeah. and meaningful way. And I think that in, in particular, some of the uh, the tilting work has has Tatlin in mind, um, and 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 that's that in a way the tilt is not the precarious, and that's why I was talking about. I mean, I don't, nobody would accuse Tatlin of being traditional, but um, that's why I was thinking more in modernist and less in to use the shorthand the the postmodern or the the kind of countercultural. I mean, it seems to me that. Um, yeah, one can think of them as being provisional and, and think of Tuttle or Bruce Nauman in relation to the kind of the angst and the forlornness and uh, the distress element in them, and that would make them feel, that would be talking them up as something more contemporary. But um, actually, their power and how they work is in terms of, of, of those kind of uh, 
formal elements that she herself stresses in, in the statement, uh, and, and kind of functional and putting together, and 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 and, and that's why actually uh, relating it more to Tatlin, less to Nauman, um, would would I think give us a better sort of bearings on on what's going on with the the posture in these works. Maybe more to Tatlin and less to Malevich. Um, Fill me in on that. Why, why bring yeah. in Nauman? Yes. <laughs> well, because they, they were at war with one another, as you know, yes. in 1915 right. during the last, uh, what was the last uh, uh, supremacist, no, the last uh, Futurist exhibition in 1915 right. in uh, right. Leningrad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think, too, just one thing I want to go back to that I mentioned, the, the verb, the list of verbs. You know, right. I think that also is her, very much her referent, the idea that, um, each one of these is performing an action in a way uh, of making uh, different things you can do to materials. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would put it definitely later than Totlin for sure. Um, more, oh, more, yeah. more as sort of in, and also I think um, were one to come across these in a different setting, outdoors, on the High Line, whatever, mm -hmm. that their their um, kind of makeshift feeling and their rough facture would feel much more striking than it, than it does in the gallery. In so. favor to Hauser and Wirth, I would point out that the Venice Biennale installation, which is in those beautiful yeah. uh, Lutians designed uh, 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 palatial spaces, was al also had this same kind of um, angsty crowdedness to it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's her direction. It, it feels like her aesthetic. Um, I would like to think some more about paint, though, because these are um, these are not uh, merely sculptures that have been coloured. Um, it seems that there's a very interesting, uh, and, and I, I concur with Robert, this this tense space between painting and sculpture. That there's a there's an interesting tension as to whether um, uh, this is colour that's applied to a sculptural form, or whether this is um, color and the act of painting as an element within the constellation of what's going on. And the, uh, the one called um, Spree, Pink Spree, uh, which is, um, it looks like um, uh, a stack of um, armadillos jumping on top. Oh, here it is. <laughs> I've, I've admonished my panelists. They're not allowed to turn around and point to anything on the screen. <laughs> That's strictly against the rules. But it so happens there it is. Uh, there it was. And um, my poetic, ekphrastic description was not necessary. Um, but in that one, um, it, it's a very sculptural thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, the, those, those jagged elements and uh, that, that strange sense of space you get with that, um, with that multi-storied but caving in on itself structure. And yet, at the same time, uh, that, that pink and black and gray paint is, is, is not just a pigmentation of an object. It feels very much like it's almost that object, irregular though it was, was a support for an almost abex painting. And so that, that lands us in an interesting place in the, the painting-sculpture uh, dichotomy. Are you following that, Faye? You, you, you see I don't I'm... agree, so. Right. <laughs> I, I, Sorry. I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that that, I, I really think this, 
discussion of which is prior, which is dominant, is, is, is not very useful. I think those surfaces are colored, but I don't think of that as, okay, I, I, I just think that the way she uses paint is, is so, I don't know, I'm just, I think it has a kind of life that is not, that it really is very much not, I don't think you could take it away. It's so hmm. textural, it's so physical. Um, it's so much a part of the, that surface is important to these works as yeah. sculpturally, as, you know, as anything. And so the surf, the fact that the surfaces are colored, I just would, I just don't know whether Abex painting is really what's going on there. It's so intimately tied to the, I'm curious, because I think it's yeah. so intimately tied to the well, it was a surface, which is part of the A Gustavan-ish palette with that pink work. Yeah. And the pinkness gives it a kind of um, slightly goofy, oafish um, quality, at the same time as being, I don't want to gender it, but it's, it's um, uh, pink is a loaded color, isn't it? I mean, it, it gives a sense of the feminine or well it can be many things too there's yes. not just one pink but Flesh. you know uh, you know Faye you keep talking about a colored surface and they're not colored they're painted okay but it, it's not exactly abex so you know I depart from David a little bit there I mean hmm. they're they're very rough and uh, you know maybe more like coons you know, poons the later poons, not, right poons uh, getting back to the discussion from a month ago, whatever. But uh, I, I think that it's it's a really painted surface, and I think the tension, as you pointed out, is very much between painting and sculpture. Very much between painting and sculpture. I, I saw so many of these that I felt you know could s slide either way. You know, there's there's one in particular, but they held their tension. You know, the, they held the, their tension. The, the, it, it, it's funny, I was in Rome Airport for a few hours uh, last week, and I was very impressed because the Romans are not usually, the Italians are not usually very high-tech with their airports, but they, they've done that recently, and they had this display in the middle of about 12 um, huge, um, Penelope would love it, 12 huge screens that move in this formation of, so it's got a very complex uh, armature behind it of these, um, arms that, that pull these screens up and down and make them into squares and then turn them around and blah, blah, blah. And so this hanging, this mobile piece that she has, I'm going to commit this, uh, you'll see it. I think it's one of the four images I selected. Um, it, it's, um, it really is, it's, it is not, um, th there are four panels that each panel is, has a, a circle cut out of it, a disc cut out of it. but. Um, three-dimensional though it is, um, it is at the same time four paintings. I mean, it is four painted surfaces. Or I wouldn't, they're, not, they're not tableau with representations on them, and I'm not going to force the issue that way. But where do you stand when, in the relation to the, the, the sense of painting as, as, as image um, in her work? 
Yeah, so I don't see that as a vertical in her work at all. I mean, I mentioned architecture, and I mentioned, um, of course, sculpture, which is evident, um, and material. And I would say that for me, painting is part of the material. So if she got this in this color, she would use it. It's just that she didn't find it in that color, so she painted it. You know, I think the painting is actually an act of, you know, kind of building a material that uh, that lends itself to this structure that she's building. And so for me, color, for her, is very very structural is part of the material and it's building the tension um, you know the tension that she wants to build between what I see is this kind of you know falling together and falling apart that tension you know even the way that she uses color and those four panels that you're talking about those hanging I think they're the hanging panels I didn't see those as canvases or paintings at all you know and so I you know I had to get used to you know everyone talking about painting because you know I wasn't thinking about painting at all when I saw those I saw them as being painted but because they were supposed to serve you know, a certain purpose, and she's thinking very much in terms of weight. She's thinking in terms of tension. She's thinking in terms of uh, you know build, building this conflict, but you know within the materials. And so, for me, the the painting is just part of the materiality of the work. It's really not painting for the sake of painting at all. I don't think. I I, I completely agree with you. And you know that if you look at that piece, Spree, hmm. uh, which is a wonderful name. I mean, Spree, right? <laughs> um, it if you look at the way the paint is applied. Um, it, it, it creates this kind of, it, it makes it even more wild because of the way there's, there's these slashes of pink and then, and then bare, well bare, whatever, the surface color, um, so that it, it really does make it even more jaggedy and more wild yeah. um, because of the way she's breaking down those surfaces into kind of light and dark areas. Mm -hmm. So she incorporates in a way its relationship to space in the very surface of the work. So I think in that sense, the color is used very sculpturally. You know, I think part of the genius, if I can use that word, because I, I think she's a terrific artist, honestly. Mm -hmm. Much more interesting to me than bourgeois, okay, from my point of view, okay? I have to say, much more interesting. And I think that the tension between what I see as painting and putting that into three-dimensional space, that's the tension. Okay, because we're looking at that from the point of view of something that we usually see on a wall, but it's not on a wall. It's within a three-dimensional space. And that creates an amazing structure that is, I think, quite unusual, and yet at the same time very open for interpretation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I find the application of paint to purposive, expressive, and um, uh, variegated for it to be plausible just to say oh it's just another material or this is the color the things are um, it really is paint and and you you got that you get that drippiness uh, that sense of uh, coagulating paint you don't you don't get this any I you very rarely get the sense that um, when things are a bright color or a strong or interesting color I very rarely get the sense of this is just some material that happened to come this color. It's, it's invariably, in fact, a surface upon which painting has taken place. So um, I, I think we've got a fundamental difference of interpretation here of, as to what the paint is and is, is doing. That's, uh, we'll all just have to go back and look again, won't we? <laughs> Fantastic. Well, no danger of paint. Uh, from uh, <laughs> our next artist, um, Sam. We're ready to go to the next loop. Um, Penelope Bombrico.
Um, yeah, it'll come, I'm sure. Um, at Brick, just up the road. And um, so this, Robert, I, I don't want to patronize you by t guessing what your age is, but I suspect there's a possibility. Could you have possibly seen, no, you're too young, the information show at MoMA? Do you, I was too young for that. You were too young for that, yes. But uh, you I wasn't in New York, let's put it that way. Uh, okay, there's one, yeah, okay. Um, you're forgiven for not having seen it then. Um, but but, but this, I, know, I know the information show. Well, you know the information yeah. show very well. You've written a book on conceptual art, and that's a landmark within, uh, within that um, movement. Um, a time when you would go to a, a museum and there'd be nothing on the wall and there'd be um, uh, uh, books and information piled on a table. Well, that's not quite what's going on here, but um, uh, maybe it's just because of the space that it, it's in, being an experimental gallery that has a um, uh, almost a sort of 60s, 70s, I feel like I'm in Documenta in 1972 or something in that space. Um, um, uh, the vibe of the show. What did you what What did you make of this show? Uh, I did write her first catalog almost thirty years ago. Ah, right. Which is amazing to think of because I haven't really been in touch with her all these years, and uh, I found the work remarkable. I think that uh, she is deconstructing what we all assume to be the monument of our cell phones. Probably some of you are on your cell phone right now. Uh, it's something that she is very, very conscious of in terms of looking at the screen and not at the thing itself. So much so that she's done a series of photographs of the sun and the moon. And all of these photographs are of other photographs that she has taken off the media. And they're all different, but none of them are the real sun and the real moon. There are literally millions of these, and she's documented them. She knows the numbers by which they have appeared on the screen. She okay. says by now it's 22 million, yes. Something like that, yes. Uh, I think that uh, what she is doing in terms of this uh, deconstruction of what we all assume to be the case, in other words, the screen that we live with, okay? Uh, I think it was uh, Jean Baudrillard who once said, we have removed ourselves from the scene and we are now on the screen. That was <laughs> said a number of years ago and I think it's still true. And I think that she's very into this idea that we're looking at uh, e-trash. That is, how many? 30 million tons of e-trash occupies this planet and only 10% of it is being recycled. That's something to think about, okay? That uh, very little of it is being reused, and she's very concerned about that issue. She's also got this great sense of how to uh, see some of this in relation to what we might call an aesthetic experience. Uh, she's very close to that, I happen to know. Uh, when you look at the cracked screens in which there is still the possibility of light peering through, she talks about these as the look of abstract painting. But 
On the other hand, there is something more dire, more problematic, which he also understands, that these screens are really going to eventually fall apart, and they will become part of the e-trash that occupies the planet. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, because she is a brilliant woman, and she speaks better than anyone about her own work. Yes, but um, uh, that can be a danger in itself, can't it? I mean, the, the, the work is what we have to look at and, um, uh, and, and get something from. Um, you know, I, I actually saw the show after having prepared um, the, the visual materials on it, and um, virtually nothing in the experience departed from what I was led to expect from it. Uh, of course, I'm not getting the pleasure or experience of actually seeing some traffic um, at the uh, nolling table so that um, uh, one could then, on one screen, um, see the live streaming of the deconstruction of somebody's old cell phone, which I'm sure will be perhaps the transformative experience. But um, Faye, where, where do you think the, how do you see the relationship between the um, physical demolition of the objects and the, the screen experience? So I think that in this, one thing that I do recommend is that I haven't been back, I've only been I only went once. Um, I would like to go back again because I think there's a kind of a shifting quality to it that's really a lot of fun. Um, for example, when I was there on one of the tables, I'm sorry, I'm not really answering your question. But, <laughs> don't don't um, worry. Okay, so on one of the tables, she had put this grid of of, uh, of glossy, you know, photographs that she'd taken of again this kind of serial imagery of cords of discarded cords on eBay or or not discarded cords that were being sold on eBay, and this is what she does. She kind of caches all this all this material. Um, to my mind, um, there's sort of are two things going on. One of them is that if you repeat something enough. Um, something that has been denatured and deracinated of any spirit is going to start to feel like it has a life again. Um, and I love that idea that, that you know, if you show, a, you know, like a thousand suns in a grid, um, yes, they're all different and eventually, even though it's all the same category, there's some way that it, it takes on this, um, this kind of other life. And she does speak about discarded screens and photographs, uh, I mean, and, and uh, images on the internet um, as, like, she'll come upon a TV on the ground and says, you know, it, it feels like it's a skull. It feels like it's a skull. It feels like it's a, there's a way she speaks about it quite poetically so that the, uh, these discarded things um, almost become ghosts. Um, mm. I think that what's really amazing to me about this show is that if you walk around it and you look at the screens all lined up against the wall, um, that first of all, they're animated by your presence, you're reflected in them, um, and she's very into that idea of a reflection um, mm. and the kind of life that it takes on. It, it, it takes on suddenly this analog material life mm. that is um, really quite removed from this, this uh, sort of Baudrillardian spectacular um, kind of thing. It, it really becomes physicalized again. And, and in those big um, 
installations of these large screens, all different sizes, the ghost of minimalism, um, the, the, um, suddenly we're animated again with this. I mean, they're really quite beautiful, the way she's arranged them against the wall. I hate to use that word, but in fact, they do have this kind of revivified monumentality um, that is so far removed from what they were originally intended to be. So that they, they again, this kind of reanimation of a ghost is to me very fascinating. Yeah, some of those, um, the, the glass um, elements, actually almost had a, Chris, uh, a, a Wilmarth kind of feeling to them. You Absolutely, know. yes, yes. Wilmarth is a good, yes. Christopher Wilmarth, Christopher yeah. Wilmarth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, uh, what, what, what what's your take? So I was actually um, almost predisposed not to like the show because um, whenever I hear a buzzword like obsolescence, it's like, okay, well, here we go again. But I really love the show. <laughs> it was actually my favorite of the four shows. Oh. Um, and that's funny because I expected not to like it. But I uh, was alone there as well. And like you, David, I would have liked to have the experience of seeing others participating with that installation. Um, you know, again, I, the word that comes to mind is beauty. I, and, you know, you don't think that because you're looking at these almost artifacts of our homes and things that we discard and throw away. And there's such a hopeless metaphor in that, you know, it's like we just throw things away when we don't, you know, we can't use them anymore. Um, but one, there was a formal beauty about it. I mean, there was this monumentality and those TV screens all stacked up. I mean, I've seen different variations of that. Uh, but this one really spoke to me. I mean, it was kind of like a future painting or something. You know, there was this like, there was this almost this texture, but it was flat and it was a screen and it was something from the past, but it was also speaking to the future. There was, it, you know, it, it, it presented itself as something quite simple, but there was quite, you know, there were many layers and there was a lot of complexity. And I actually thought it was a much younger artist. I didn't know that she had a 30 year career. So, I mean, in a way, the, the layers and the complexity make sense. She's obviously been working at this for a while. Um, so there was this kind of intangible, you know, this, you know, this kind of lived experience within those objects as well, these things that have been used. I don't think she just went somewhere and bought all these screens. I mean, I think these things have been, you know, used um, and, and, and cast away. And so there was this sense of it being set up as this kind of graveyard, yeah. which, you know, could have conjured up, you know, something much more macabre and hopeless about the human condition and all of that. But, you know, that knowledge table is really like the winner for me it's like it's this is the other side of it right and there's uh, you know all the, almost it's like this Vedic idea that in order to create we need to destroy mm -hmm. you know uh, in order to live we need to kill and it's the eternal paradox right that you know we, it's the eternal human conflict um, and as cliched as it sounds, she actually manages to kind of embody that experience in this. And even though there weren't people uh, kind of at that gnawing table, you know, essentially to me that was a really hopeful, you know, takeaway that, you know, even though there is all this destruction, that there is this kind of ray of light in a way that, you know, as creative human beings, we, can, we also have a solution. And it was a thinking space in that. It was a workspace. And it was inviting you to come in there and to, you know, uh, to create out of this destruction in a 
sense. You know, I'd like to be yeah. the witness of a wildly participatory day. Oh my God! I would. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm there I was with there, you. I was there. I was there when there were a ton of people. Oh, you there. You, you did see that? Yes. Oh wow. And, okay. and there was a woman gleefully taking a, a, something apart at the table, <laughs> and there were kids all over the place. And you know, she has those things like discarded on the floor. It was. It was chaotic in there, so it was. It felt very much full of life to me. Uh -huh. um, so I just. I'm really curious. Yeah. I'd love to see some footage of that or, or experience it because it, it seemed to me almost that the the uh, scatter aesthetic uh, was very artful. I was almost put in mind. I'm not about the table, which which has it was rather anal in its um, organisation, but the um, uh, the scraps of stuff on the floor had a kind of Barry LeVay installation feeling to it, um, uh, but without any of his aesthetic intent. It really, with all the kids there, it felt yes. a little bit like parents who had a bunch of kids and they, you know, you go into their house and it's just chaos and there's mm -hmm. toys all over the place and uh. had a little bit more of that feeling, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, over the past uh, month or so, I've had two interesting conversations, one with Martha Rossler and the other one with uh, Penelope uh, Ambrico. And I have to say that w both of them mentioned that they wonder why they've never been thought of in terms of conceptual artists. They both mentioned this. Hmm. And I find it very interesting, okay? Because I think that Penelope is a conceptual artist. I mean, she's not just media artist. I don't know what that means anymore. It was something that came up 20 years ago and it's still being used. But I think that conceptual is much more serious and that's what she does. And I think that Martha was very concerned about the fact that everything is political, but she said, you know, there's really an underpinning that is conceptual in my work and I believe her. Okay, so I think that you know we need to relook, or at least I need to relook, at some of these uh, speculations that I had a number of years ago, and maybe open up a bit and think more about it. Mm. The 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 way that um, we got a little bit of the debates between Clinton and you know who um, kind of struggling to sort of or seeping out of these almost. Um, uh, irreparable screens. Um, uh, it's not the news. She says, uh, the, the, the press release gave me to believe that we would see the news on these screens, but in fact, it's uh, a very carefully chosen moment of history that's, that's in the, uh, on these screens. Is that, a, is that a, um, maybe a slightly contrived and theatrical moment? Well, ori originally she was going to do uh, clips from horror films, okay? And she says, what could be more horrible than the news? <laughs> so <Right>. she changed <laughs> it. Uh, okay, right. A Frankenstein, yes. Another person that's coming to my mind as, as uh, seeing her as a kind of a bookend within the spectrum uh, or the, the, the timeline of um, artists feeling attitudes towards um, technology uh, and it's not to characterize uh, is is um, Naim June Pike yeah, I was that, that in fact that. Um, uh, I don't want to trivialize his contribution by seeing him as a he's very as an much in optimist. admiration very much in admiration yeah, yeah yeah but in a way she's a sort of dark coda to his um, dardaristic exuberance with technology is that, true, is that a fair? True. That's true, yes. 
I think there's a kind of sensu sensuality in this work as well. I mean, which you don't expect because these are essentially machines. Mm. And I still, you know, even though you're talking about specifics about each of the things that she uh, puts in her installation, I actually didn't pay attention to any of that because I just enjoyed it as an abstraction. There was these layers, and of course, there was information coming from each of those things. But I was. I was just as happy to enjoy that information as an abstraction and as another layer. And I think I was surprised by the sensuality that was in that space. And if you ask me where it came from, I don't know. But there was a sensuality. And I think that's also quite different from Namjoon Pike, who I think is very cerebral and didactic and kind of. Really? I, I think he's more playful. And, um, um, and, and there's a certain sort of. Uh, Dark quality in what he's what he's up to, and and the, and he's he's quite a hands-on and almost painterly with the with the way the uh, screens work within those personages. Very didactic, uh, also, and, and yeah. Penelope isn't about that at all. Yeah. Right. But I do agree with what you said, by the way. I th and she, I'm sure she would. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Good to know. Excellent. Well, um, I think it's a good time to bring in our panel to discuss both uh, Umbrica and um, uh, Barlow. You mean the audience? So, oh, the audience. Yeah, we're the panel. <laughs> the Did I say panel? I, yes. Yes. Well, OK. Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it would be nice to uh, uh, some, somehow, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful room we're in, and I'm very grateful to the Brooklyn Public Library for hosting us. But somehow, a panel in the round, if we were right bang in the middle, and, and so-called audience was all around us, I think it would be a very interesting dynamic, a little less proscenium. Um, yes, there's a, there's a hand there, but please do wait, wait for the mic. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I just thought that it's an interesting juxtaposition between the two shows, and if you could talk about almost how, how you see the two shows working together or apart from each other? Because it, it seems, I can't quite put language to it, but they almost feel like they could, there's cross currents between them. I think, I think there are. I think that's a very fine, I think that's a good point. And we, we didn't, as a panel, um, think about or discuss that yet. But um, uh, it, it wasn't my intention that there should be. But um, I can see that, yeah. Um, but let's take some more comments and, and, and contributions, and then perhaps we'll absorb it. Yes, uh, wait for the mic, though, Shun. Um, regarding the, the Barlow show, y'all were using the term provisional a lot. And uh, I guess for clarification, did you mean like intentionally crudely applied? Or what was? What was your what, what was the what's the definition of the way that you were using it? Because it seems like I've I've heard it a lot and I hear it used a lot of different ways. Well, one of the, can I yeah pop in okay uh, one of the uh, points that I got from that show is that uh, who buys these and and if they you know put them in a space who takes care of them. Who manages them over time? I remember many years ago, uh, a lecture at MIT by Otto Pina, okay? He was said, you know, we don't think enough about how to take care of art. You know, we just 
you know, want to get it up there or out there or in there, whatever. And uh, so, you know, I didn't use that word tonight, provisional, but I think that could be provisional in the sense that a lot of this work doesn't look like it's going to hold up unless it is maintained, okay, which is not the case for all sculpture. I mean, you know, hypothetically, anyway. But I think I, I think I, I had a different, different yeah I had a different um, in terms of provisionality. Um, I, I think of it as more sort of the um, the fact that these works are dependent on another state of being, a space, uh, a, a, a viewer looking at it. Was that you asking that? I, I looking, yeah, um, and um, that that means that it has a kind of flux about it, you know, that it, that it actually, um, depending upon changing circumstances, the work can have a different kind of, it's not going to be static, like, like a, let's say a modernist, you know, a more modernist oriented sculpture. It's gonna, it, it changes according to how it's being viewed, where it's being viewed, and I think even in the case of the God forbid I bring it up again, but the paint. Um, but the idea that it is um, that it is changing the circumstances in which we look at that work. Is, is that helpful at all? Or? Yeah. I think when, when, I mean, it's your colleague, sometime colleague at Art in America, um, Raphael Rubinstein, who's brought the word into uh, a, a very generalized uh, currency within the way we talk about art. And it has to do with that um, makeshift, tentative, unresolved, uh, work in progress um, aesthetic and, and mindset uh, that had, had, at the time of Rubinstein writing about it, become uh, quite prevalent and quite striking. Um, and, and that I think, I thought when you used the word provisional, uh, you were helping me think of her in relation to someone like Richard Tuttle, whose, whose work has that kind of uh, vulnerable, flimsy, um, uh, uh, non-committal quality. Yeah, I mean, and she's way more robust than that. I don't think that's really what she's about. But this idea of the, the, the link between the two show that somebody mentioned earlier, um, and I think for me, um, something that comes out of conceptual art is this idea, the, the verb, the list of verbs, you know, and I think that that, that is something that I feel in uh, Barlow. Um, I think that, I don't know, that's my, my link to conceptualism for those two shows. I don't, I don't really see them as very similar, so, Neither. at all. Uh, so, but that's, that's as much as I can stretch to that. Hmm. Okay, let's I'm just gonna, okay. Sorry. Uh, sorry, I'm just going to just add something very quick to that. Um, so it made me think about, again, you know, when you use the word provisional, and I think the word that comes to me um, in terms of the way that uh, Phila de Barlow uses color and paint, paint and color, because they're connected in her work, um, and also to answer your question about uh, you know what? You know what? What are the similarities between these two shows? I mean, the word that comes to me is fugitive, um, rather than provisional, in the sense that uh, color just you know the element of color in um, and paint and then paint follow you know whatever she's trying to do is that you know the color is fugitive because in that particular work it looks like shark teeth and stacked on each other and they're falling over the color reads as something erotic uh, but it doesn't always read as erotic I mean I think that she's able to use color um, to create 
whatever she wants, you know, and it really depends on the work that she's making. And in that sense, the color is fugitive, which actually makes it kind of subversive and exciting, mm. um, if, if one thinks of it that way. And, um, and I would say with the two shows, I mean, there is also this kind of sense of when I really love Philippa Barlow's work, and I didn't love all the works in that show, but I think that at her best, she is kind of fugitive, and she's um, she is subversive, and she's pushing against you know the, the these strict boundaries of say a gallery space or any space that they kind of inha inhabit. And when she does that, I think she's um, very successful. And of course, with uh, you know we've talked a lot about the other show as well, and Penelope Umbrico. I mean, there is a sense of the fugitive, but in a complete entirely different. Way. Well, with with, yeah. with Umbrico, um, not to simplify things too much. No, but, not simplify. You know. But, but uh, Umbrico is, is is extracting her artistry, the poetry from objects that have had um, an absolutely transparently obvious function and life in the world, and has come to the end of that life. And so that that's the fugitive. I like the word fugitive because uh, provisional is is in the. Uh, in the body of the maker, and a fugitive is in the life of the object, mm. and um, mm. so um, what? What? And, and in that spirit, what it occurs to me is that the color in um, Barlow makes the works much less abstract, more contingent, more things that are having a life in the world. Because in sculpture. Um, the purity of sculpture is when it, the marble or uh, uh, the, the, the colorlessness that, that, that Winkelmann was so obsessed by with uh, uh, Greek sculpture that the paint had fallen off of and having that beautiful white marble uh, ethereal uh, abstract quality. Um, by being colored things, they are much more things in the world, aren't they? I think, I think actually I want to take my provisional word back. Contingent. I like fugitive a lot, and I think contingent is more what I'm all thinking right, about. Well, this is yes. what panels are for. Let us <laughs> just Thank you. mix it all up and find the word. I'm tired. Want. Let's get some, more, uh, <laughs> let's get some <laughs> more comments. Yes, there's a gentleman there, but I'm. Yeah, I can speak. Now, you do need a mic because we're recording, and, but he's first anyway. First. Yeah, go for it. Uh, you know, I, I so remember in a former panel, you spent a long time talking about the pedestals of John Newman. And I can't I, hear and you. Use the mic, please. We can't hear you. I'm sorry. I said in a former panel, you spent a long time talking about the pedestals of John Newman. Mm -hmm. the, the pedestals on these pieces, I'd like, uh, about uh, Barlow, I'd like to comment, uh, I'd like you guys to give me some feedback on that part of it. Okay. They feel um, very... I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the question. Yeah, Don was asking about the, the, the pedestals and, and, and mentioned that in a previous panel discussion where we were looking at <coughs> John Newman, the pedestals were... Was it Newman? Are you sure? Yeah, yeah it was, was, was very important to us. And uh, we'll, we'll keep that in mind, but I do want another comment. There's a gentleman just a couple of rows behind you who had something to say, unless it was exactly the same point, which I doubt. <laughs> Yes, as, as, as we were talking about the provisional and fugitive and other ways of understanding. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Is the mic on? Because, yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, so as, as I was thinking about closer. the words provisional and fugitive and the different ways to see the two shows, it occurred to me, what if I am an art packer and mover? And I'm I actually can't hear a word. I'm sorry. I just, what if I'm looking at the art as a an art handler, and I have to store the work or move it to another venue. 
how would I approach that with the two different artists? Um, and I think that that, would, that really breaks down into some of the differences between installation and conceptual art as opposed to object and sculpture and how you would handle these works. In the one hand, as unique works, which you would put in one box, and as the other, as a, as a work of archiving, cataloging, recomposition, and readapting to the space. So I just thought that might give a different angle to the conversation if you looked at it from an information point of view, for example. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yeah, in the, towards the back. And I think that will be. I'm just curious because you mentioned Nam June Pike, and he is a front and center of the programmed show at the Whitney. How would you read this artist and that show, which uses uh, video instructions, program, algorithms so differently than what we're seeing here? Just because David had mentioned that, maybe you have some reading against that show. What show? Programmed sure. at the Whitney. Programmed at the Whitney. Oh. Codes, choreography. That's definitely, that's a very suggestive and thoughtful notion. I don't think we necessarily have an answer, but um, I did want to say that um, um, we love comments better than questions because we, we've sort of done our bit here and I'm, I'm not it's a very that's a very apposite question I think that's something for us to to go to the Whitney and think about uh, Umbrico while we're there and 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 uh, she was in a very interesting group exhibition at Postmasters uh, recently about screens um, and and a, a quite a, a, a interest a, a very diverse spread of artists all actually using the physical fact of the screen and and but what you're referring to at the Whitney is a show that's about programming um, which is a uh, the opposite end of the same stick you could say because the, the screen is the is the physicality of something that is actually virtual and the programming is the abstraction within within that um, event all right great I do want to respond to Don, okay, we don't have time. No, respond to Don, yes, please do, that's great. No, no, no. Don was asking about pedestals, but I don't think one can, can one legitimately talk about pedestals with Barlow? I know that some of them are on. Yeah, but they're so integral, they're like the feet, aren't they? No, she, she's quite, quite, Careful about those pedestals, if you can even call they're really incorporated into the work. Well, that's right, that. that's why, yeah. that's, but excuse I mean, me, if they're incorporated into the work, they're not pedestals. That's the, but, but you know, well, it's, uh, I thought of the. <laughs> All right, oh no, here we go painting, sculpture. No, pedestals. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. Please. No, no, I'm not talking, I, I wasn't referring, I was just but, like. But, but the pedestals remind me a lot of Brancusi in the sense that they, yeah. they have a sculptural form. Yeah, they do, yeah. they do. Right. Right. Great hair. They felt modern, very kind of modernistic, finely crafted, and then the trail on top would have had this kind of provisional, fugitive quality to it. So there was a real tension between mm. the upper part and the lower part, which would add it, I think, to that. Yeah, but what they're what they're most mm. emphatically not um, are. Um, 
uh, framing devices of convenience provided by a gallery. They are, yes. they are as sculpted. And, and I think Brancusi is therefore the right point of reference because Brancusi, Brancusi, Brancusi had this um, uh, definite distinction in his mind between the object and its pedestal, but the pedestal was nonetheless to be crafted um, uh, and in, by the same hand as the object. Yeah, cool. Okay, time for our second movie as we move to part two of our program. What unites the two painters who occupy the second half of this evening's panel is that they both enjoy a kind of quiet cult status among fellow practitioners. Harriet Corman and Glenn Goldberg each make idiosyncratic work, chromatically rich, decoratively dense, sometimes reductive, even goofy, insistently handmade. Corman is having her first solo show with Thomas Urban after participating in two group shows at that gallery. She's been seen over a number of years now at Lennon-Weinberg. Goldberg, who was the subject of a career overview at the New York Studio School this summer, is showing an untypical group of images and objects at Studio 10 in Bushwick, though when is that artist ever quite typical? So, Sharmista, um, Harriet Corman, what, uh, what's your take on her? So, for me, that work is essentially about two things. One, it's about chromatic structures. I think that's essentially what excites the artist. Um, and the second thing is translation. Um, and the reason I came away with those you know, two things is there was, I'll start with translation, is that there's such a difference between the drawings, which are like these extremely expressionistic. You know, it's just what's in her mind just comes out um, in those drawings, and there's not really these filters of structuring and you know patterning and perfection in those. And you know, and then you have the paintings, which are incredibly structured. They're beautifully painted in the sense that they're not beautiful objects. I don't think that's her point. Uh, but you know, you don't see the brushstrokes really. I mean, sometimes you do, but you know, I don't think that's the point either. They're really flatly painted. Um, you know, and what you know even though you have the structure there's one structure that she's working with there's these four quadrants uh, it's almost like a cross in the middle and then there's these four quadrants and she repeats that over and over again and at first I was thinking well maybe she's interested in variation and then I realized she's not I mean she's actually I mean of course some of them are very symmetrical uh, but the ones that visually to me as well were very interesting because I do think this work relates to op art as well um, and of course uh, geometric abstraction and to some extent minimalism I think she's uh, talked about Solowit as being kind of an influence on her work is that um, she's really seeing how far she can push the chromatic structure with this, you know, with this form that she's form that she's chosen, and I think that became when she pushed it the most. And there were these kind of, you know, they were really 
you, you, she, she was seeing how far she could put it, push it from symmetry. I think symmetry was really her benchmark, and she was seeing how far she could push this to really still work as an image. Um, and I think it was that tension and that push and pull within that chromatic structure that was really my takeaway. And the second thing was the translation, the translation from the drawing to the painting, because it was almost like the drawings were sketches. Um, and then the paintings become complete, you know, completely different. So the, so what I'm trying to say is that you know they're they're kind of, this is still a thought that is forming in my head. But they're they're almost occupying two completely different spaces. And yeah, it's not that the drawing leads to the painting. They're actually two separate things. Um, and there is this translation that is being made within that, which to use the word provisional. <laughs> <laughs> there is something provisional within that translation, um, which, which for me, it was really the things in between that became interesting. I, one thing I really loved about the installation of the show, which I thought was a kind of work in itself, um, is that the, the um, outrageous breaking of all rules of actually using the supporting columns within the gallery mm. as walls for, uh, in a couple of instances, for uh, works on paper. And that pulling the work on paper into a different plane from the, uh, the, the hanging paintings um, wasn't an orthodoxy. There was one instance of uh, a drawing right next to a painting. But uh, that really kind of <coughs> energized and um, a sense of uh, a, a journey between um, uh, paper and canvas. Um, uh, do you, do you buy the Sharmista's uh, interpretation, um, Faye, of, of um, something fundamentally different between the, uh, the, the speed and spontaneity of the works on paper and the uh, modulated pace of the paintings? I mean, sure, but that's not what was the most interesting thing to me about the show. Um, and I do agree about the installation. The installation was masterful, absolutely gorgeous. And the dealer did tell me that you know, she shows normally at Lennon Weinberg, and apparently she really wanted to show in this particular space. Lennon Weinberg is a really unhappy space for, for installations of paintings, and she really loved this square space in which to put the paintings. So, and that's interesting. But so for me, this was an absolutely wonderful, magical show. And, and I walked in with not necessarily the highest expectations of it, but the longer I spent there, and I did spend really a long time there, um, the more these paintings, the weirder and more mysterious these paintings became, to the point where, so you've got this absolutely the same structure in each of the paintings. You have, you have a basically a cross at the center, and then these four quadrants in which you have these L-shaped bars um, that create these kind of rectangles within it. Um, they are, uh, and this is one of these kinds of painting shows where I get so excited, I don't even know how to talk about it, honestly. Uh, one of the things I thought was um, sort of what happens sort of in mythology at a crossroads, um, the famous, you know, transformative spot of the crossroads and how magical and devilish things happen there. Um, because I think the more you look at these paintings, I mean, they are ostensibly symmetrical, uh, but they're really not. Um, they're, they're, you know, it's really pretty different. Sometimes the colors parallel each other in the quadrants. Sometimes they don't. Um, I don't see them at all as flatly painted. They, they, you, you don't, you're not aware of like, 
expressionistic brushstrokes, but you're very aware of this kind of meticulous application of the paint, and sometimes uh, in the interstices between the bars where they overlap, there will be a sort of a, a, another color in there. Uh, they're absolutely manifestly handmade, um, and they are wonky. Um, the more you look at them, the wonkier they get. So, um, so for me, and I even had them print the paintings out for me in black and white <laughs> because I had this theory that somehow the, the weight of the colors was the same, that she was putting similarly weighted valued colors next to each other. Well, sometimes she is and sometimes she's not. And the places where you get those, those kind of sometimes these intense contrasts, sometimes these closely valued colors, and then you, you're looking at that spot and you, your eye gets stuck. I mean, you really have to spend time with this work. Um, and I love a painter who really makes you spend some time looking at the work because it's, you know, it's one of the great pleasures of painting as far as I'm concerned. So I don't mean to go on and on, but I thought this was an absolutely brilliant, um, brilliant show and one that gave me an enormous amount of pleasure. So um, I don't know what else to say about it. Well, that's, that's a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good start. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I don't want this to become a a leitmotif of the evening, uh, Robert, but uh, just as I <laughs> felt inclined with Barlow to say, sure, I can see how recent contemporary postmodern sculpture is key to what she's doing, but nonetheless, this seems to be a funny kind of throwback to early European modernism. Um, I feel with Corman as well that, um, um, sure, I can see how Solowit would be a hero to her, and I can see interesting correlations between what she's doing and some contemporaries like Stephen Westfall, and, and also I can see um, um, a relationship, perhaps a critical relationship with, with Frank Stella. But um, the, the, the handmadeness, the, 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 the excitement uh, of, of putting together those colors in those shapes, it seemed to, to me to really uh, take me right back to constructivism, suprematism, um, and, and, and um, t but also to a kind of more homespun American modernism. I, I, I think of um, Dove or um, Birchfield mm. or people in the, uh, the workmanlike solid way of putting down the stuff to get those shapes. More, more, um, more Dove, less Albers. Um, how would you... Uh, uh, you're, of course, perfectly at liberty to do the review panel thing of hearing a long rambling question from David Cohen and say, I'm not going to answer that, say your own thing. But um, should you be inspired to answer it, I'd be very curious to hear what you have to say, uh, Robert. I'm, I'm sure you would, David. <laughs> um, I, I liked your comment about the homespun American point of view. I wouldn't go back as far as Dove, although I see your point, or... Um, uh, well, anyway, I'm thinking more in terms of Jules Lang Langsner, who, uh, this name is not familiar on the East Coast, but on the West Coast, he's very well known. It was very well known. I don't think he's still living. But in 1962, he came up with a term called hard-edge abstraction. And that was applied to Carl Benjamin. By the way, Carl Benjamin was shown at the Lewis Stern Gallery in Miami. I didn't see it, unfortunately, but I think Carl Benjamin was a very important artist. And John McLaughlin, Lord Sir Feidelson also. Uh, anyway, the point is that this kind of work, hard edge abstraction, is often seen by 
Americans as somewhat boring, uh, tedious, not as exciting as Pollock and de Kooning and uh, the action painters and so forth. Uh, therefore, I would suggest there is a bias in terms of when you look at hard edge abstraction, and I'm mentioning this because I really think that Harriet Corman is coming out of this based on what I know of her work earlier and what I saw. I think she's really opening it up in this show. This is for sure. There's no question, and I agree with your comments to that effect. Uh, however, I think that uh, we have to begin to see, and Harriet Corman is going to help us see it, that her painting can be as exciting as action painting, okay? Just because there's a gesture there doesn't mean that one has feeling and the square and the rectangle don't. I don't know where this bias comes from, but it's present. And I think that Harriet Corman really has opened a door that is extremely important in this exhibition in terms of suggesting that there can be the content of feeling in this kind of work. That all the things are often talked about in relation to gestural abstraction can be talked about in relation to what she is doing. Now, in terms of the color, frankly, I had problems with it. I believe the same problems that Greenberg had with many of the Washington color feel painters, okay? I don't I'm not particularly given to the color but I'm given to how she uses the color and how she makes it work in relation to these extraordinary paintings, okay? There's a difference, but it's an important difference. I think that... Uh, can, we, uh, can we, Robert, yeah. sorry. Um, um, I think you've said a lot, and I think that's, uh, <laughs> the, the last point is something that I think we can really uh, do something with, and that's it's rather interesting, is it's this notion that you don't like the color, but you like what she's doing with the color. Right. And that's, uh, uh, that's a really original and, and insightful thing, because um, when, when an artist gives us fields of color or, or, or vibrating squares and, and, and flag-like forms of color, um, it, it feels like you, you've got to like those colors to like this painting. And in fact, you, you, you quite brilliantly point out that no, that's not the case because with a painter of this nature, um, it's, 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 you know, it's a matter of taste whether you happen to like these colors or not, that it's, that it's the relationship between them and the, um, the structures of thought that using such colors embody that. That's exactly um, right, yeah. Yeah. That is the point. At, That's my point, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like um, a composer, like um, uh, you might say, take Satie and say, and you might say, well, I don't like um, slow tunes in the major key. And you say, that's neither here nor there. If you listen to Satie, it's about something other than mm -hmm. slow tunes in the major key. Right, right, right. Uh, anyway, I'm uh, very taken by the show you know, for the reasons that I stated. Uh, I think that it's an important show to see. I'm not sure about the drawings in relation to the paintings. I mean, I see the point, obviously, on an academic level, I suppose. Uh, but what she did with the paintings themselves, I think, is uh, a leap into a very positive direction. What would you say, uh, Faye, about painting? Well, first of all, I, 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 I mean, I like a lot of what both of you have said. Um, I, I like the idea that the painting, I mean, the color really is about the interaction amongst these yes. paintings and within the paintings themselves, but she's not a hard edge painter. 
I mean, she's they're pretty not. soft for hard edge. I mean, she's not even remotely a hard coming, edge. No, 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 no. She's coming out of hard edge painting. I, guess I see. Okay. okay. Because I, 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 she may be coming out of it, but like if you if you were to put her painting up to next to a Stephen Westfall painting, you would see a pretty. It would be like a whole golf open. How many people saw the show? So some of you did see the show. I think I think there's. Um, I mean, I see. I see what you're saying that that's uh, my, her legacy. My point legacy, is about this show is she's it's, coming out of that. Is but my she's. Point. I mean, there's. There's so. Um, I mean, I. I almost do. I'm, I'm not sure. I go all the way to Arthur Dove, but I do <laughs> think there is something about the way those things are painted. Um, well, the facture. I mean, if you look even at Mondrian, uh, who you think is the patron saint and the father of Hard Edge, um, the way they're made, and it's not just the provisional. The, it's the fugitive, not the provisional, but it's not just the way that the uh, crackling of uh, Mondrian give them a strange kind of afterlife which makes them feel more contingent. But the, the Mondrian, even though Mondrian envisioned a, a, an artwork of the future which wouldn't need a human hand to make it, um, we valorize him really because of that human hand that's in those objects. And I, th I feel that uh, with Corman, um, the, 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 the the sense of her presence in the facture and the making of those things removes them fundamentally from hard edge abstraction. The, the other thing which should be meant, I'm sorry, I just want to say yeah. one thing quickly, That's that exactly it, it really quickly is that, is that these paintings, it's four years of work. Hmm. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, it's they, it's they, a no, long, they were long and... You could say long. that's her business, but in fact, actually, the sense of the slow, gestated making uh, is, is tangible. Uh, uh, Mister, you're going to say something here. Yeah, no, they felt, you know, I spent some time with them, and I don't, don't have the benefit of knowing her personally or having had a conversation with her or even seeing her work previously. So I was really responding to this. And um, for me, when I use the word, you know, flatly, you know, when I said they were flatly painted, is because I don't think the surface you know, it, there was a certain kind of disembodiment. So I read it as non-object oriented art, you know, in the sense that it's not really speaking to anything outside of itself. It really is about a certain kind of formalism. Uh, but the one aspect, which is why I was talking about chromatic structure, is that that was a, that is really the body of the painting for me, you know? And um, when she really does get, and using the word wild is a bit weird with these paintings because they're anything but wild. But there is something about the color that is really uncomfortable and I just couldn't, you know, put my finger on it. Um, and I still can't and I kept looking at them and there is something really strange about that color. Um, not when she uses it in more symmetrical, more, you know, when, when the form becomes more symmetrical, but when she starts to push it and it, there's one with the purple, I don't know if you remember that, but it's really just off kilter and um, there's, it's psychological logically interesting, but um, they're still in this space of that she's not, and the show is called Permeable Impermeable, I think. Um, and then I realized that I kind of like the fact that she's not giving it up to me easily. Like, you know, I said, well, are these spiritual? Do I see this in the vein of Malevich? I was like, no, it doesn't want to be that either. You know, so what is this color? <laughs> um, I couldn't read them spiritually. I couldn't read them in terms of the organic, the, you know, the natural world. And so they're kind of in this weird space. And it's really the color more than anything else that is doing that for me. And they're also quite systematic. I mean, the color, first of all, there's no white in the color at all. There's no zero white. white. Yes, yeah, no white use, in right. those paintings at all. Mm -hmm. There's no real space in those paintings. 
they are claustrophobic, aren't they? Is yes, something? and there's no is transitions. I mean, there's yeah. no transitions in the. I, I don't think they're claustrophobic. I think they could be emblematic, but they're not claustrophobic. Oh. When I say emblematic, I'm not trying to tie some kind of uh, agenda to that. I'm just saying that uh, they have that feeling to me. Uh, there, there's no content beyond the form. But there is a sense of space in them. I would, I would, I, yeah, I don't read them as claustrophobic. There is space within them. And I like the fact that she uses this small scale and, you know, this intimate scale, and they're not kind of these massive paintings. I don't know. That was also. I like that. There, yeah. there is something that holds them back from being emblematic, however, uh, Robert. And, and, and that's not just the, the facture of them having been made in a certain way, it's the um, explorations of the off kilter of the, uh, the crosses that don't, right. that don't meet. And um, I think if, if you were designing a flag, you'd get fired if you uh, made as many quote unquote mistakes as she does. <laughs> in, 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 and and, and that, that kind of circuitry is, is, almost, is, is kind of key, isn't it? It's um, as, as, as soon as we get used to the ubiquity of this kind of grid, this, uh, this St. George cross yeah. um, motif, uh, it's actually the irregularities um, of uh, uh, the, 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 the misbehaving uh, uh, vertical and, and horizontal. That you, you would call it circuitry. I, I would call it the, the unpredictability of these paintings which is her, her strength, one of the strengths. I mean, there are right. many strengths in these paintings. But I think that uh, you cannot uh, predetermine what it's going to be, I mean, in the process of looking at it. Right. One thing you said that I really love is that is that just because it's hard edge doesn't mean that there isn't feeling in it, right. you know. Exactly. And I think yeah. I think these are intensely feeling paintings. I don't know what the feeling is exactly, um, and also they make us they make us. I mean, I think that's the color, and also the saturation of that color. Um, they're quite insistent, and they're quite insistent that they be looked at, yes. you know. And that's that's pretty cool too. I think. And they're insistent that they're looked at in the gallery. They are radically reduced in reproduction. They, the re oh, yeah. reproduction is uh, a souvenir. You cannot possibly of, know yes. them from reproduction. You cannot right. possibly know them from reproduction. Oh, right. Well, we need to move on now. That was a very rich discussion, I think. By That's a pretty gold standard for the review panel, if I may, <laughs> <laughs> I may give, if, if it's not extremely uh, discourteous to all the panelists that have been and will be. That's the title but, of one of my paintings, the gold yes, standard. Yes, OK, yeah. Uh, uh, I really loved that discussion. Okay, that's um, and great paintings, uh, great discussion. But um, uh, I was looking, I was doing some research this afternoon, thinking, okay, I need to say something about Glenn, who I who I love, and he's a, a really amusing, quirky artist. Um, and of course, naturally, one goes to art critical to research any artist of importance. <laughs> and um, lo and behold, uh, art critical search engine took me to the review panel from 2012, where Faye Hirsch was a guest, and we were discussing Glenn Goldberg. Um, <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, at Jason McCoy. Yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I thought I had written about it, and then and I couldn't figure out why my I couldn't find my review anywhere. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and I have a golden rule of not bringing the cr a critic back to talk again about the same artist because. Okay, I won't say anything. 
I, I really, it's fine. No, no, no. I don't have anything to say. On the contrary, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> All right. This, I find this really hard to talk about, this work. Yeah. It's OK. Then, then I'm I not. agree. I mean, it, 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 I, mean it, I kind of love them, but I don't know what to say about them exactly. Let's, try, let's just start by describing what we're seeing. Because uh, this, we're not seeing it. Well, you're not seeing it. We're, we're um, sorry, um, Sam, we're ready to move to the fourth loop. Thank you. And um, we will, you will literally be seeing it in a minute. But our mind's eye is flooded by what we've seen. And we're going to um, impress you with the ekphrastic brilliance of our description of it. Because when in doubt, describe. So. Um, I'm familiar with his work, and, and we had a fantastic, there was a fantastic exhibition of his work at the New York Studio School, which really was uh, an overview, uh, you know, in, that, in the restricted space of those two rooms at, at um, uh, West 8th Street, really got a fantastic, uh, um, a very insightful overview of what he does. And he's a, a, a painter very strangely akin to Corman in the, in the slowness and and the deliberativeness, deliberatedness of his facture. Um, but at the studio school, you, you, you saw one body of work after another growing out of each other. And um, uh, he, it seems that uh, uh, going back to his alma mater in the village, he's very well behaved. And it seems like he lets his hair down in Bushwick, because this was <laughs> one weird little show. It was um, really weird. And I, I'm uh, having a lot of trouble working out uh, what on earth he was really doing and thinking with the objects brought together. Um, um, but um, uh, we, we've got these pestle-like uh, sculptural objects that um, whose function in life or in aesthetics, I'm struggling to work out. We've got a duck on a pedestal. Uh, we've got, um, and we've got some um, shaped paintings, but with his trademark evolved uh, personal pointillism. Um, and what we don't have is this kind of mantra, tantric, um, um, getting lost in a kind of nursery form uh, uh, otherworldliness um, uh, that, that, that's his hallmark. So um, I wonder what he's playing at. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Do you want me to go first? Please, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just said I wouldn't say anything, but um, yeah. you were so helpful that yeah, so um, I have a those, little, those little objects, which are these ceramic, um, they're almost like those talking what are they called? Talking sticks? The, the things where you, they're like, I don't know if they're, I don't even remember whether they're African. I think they might be, but they're these poles. And then when you turn them upside down, they, they have this, they make this sound. Rain sticks. Brain sticks. Ra rain. Rain. Not brain. Rain. Rain. So rain. So they reminded me almost like of little truncated rain sticks. Um, oh. And so to me, and, and the surfaces are, you know, it's ceramic, but there also is a little bit of modeling on some of the surface so that it feels a little bit like the pointillist mm. marks that he makes, which isn't the right term for it, but the dots that he makes on his paintings. Um, and so that's all, just that, that those rain sticks felt 
a little otherworldly to me. There's also a digital print, big digital print um, of, a, of a female figure. Um, it looked a lot like that really early drawing he did of Mercedes Mater, Matter. Uh-huh. Um, there was something sort of glamorous about it, but it was this blurry, um, big blurry digital print. image. Yes. Um, with a little bit of gingham or something at the top of it. Um, yes. Anyway, the, it's mystic. The, 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 I found it baffling, the, the collection altogether, but there was something very otherworldly about it to yeah. me. Did you read the press release? No. So it's just this list of situations. Oh dear. Okay, I didn't. Yeah, know so I think, sorry, I, I'm not sure if you were finished and I'm just no, dovetailing please, with that. I, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I thought it was baffling as well. Um, and this is one instance in which I wish I had more information. And I'm really glad that you brought up those little objects because I have no idea what those were. And I felt almost embarrassed about it <laughs> because I was like, is that the missing link to this show? Um, but I realized after reading the press release, which was kind of like this, this, this list of situations that I mean, I guess that's kind of the point, that he doesn't want us to read this as a narrative. And there, there are really these moments uh, or time frames within his memory of obviously being at the beach. I mean, not to get literal about it, but it's, you know, there's a dog, and I'm like, is that his dog? Um, you know, there were these frames of reference, which to me felt very mnemonic, that they were from his memory. And um, even though I can't really fully make sense of the show, um, there, was a sen there was an intimacy about it. I mean, the, it, it felt felt quite innocent. You know, I hate to use that word for a grown man, but there was this kind of innocence about it. And um, I don't th think he's trying to be clever. I really think that it, he was, in a way, um, stepping away from um, you know, giving something to us that is fully resolved. I mean, I think that we have to kind of, cr you know, create our own bridge and cross it. Um, uh, so I, I guess I'm supposed to be baffled by it. Um, and of course, there was no one object that I was really gravitating towards. I did gravitate towards those little objects because just because I couldn't understand them very much. You know, I mean, I just couldn't understand what their purpose was within the context of this exhibition. But. Um, but yeah, no, there was something poetic about it, but I, I can't say I fully comprehend what he's doing. Yes, Robert, did you feel that the um, sum was greater than indi individual parts with this show? Was it a, did it achieve something like a Cornell box of um, strangely brought together things that nonetheless uh, cohered in some way? I love Cornell, but it was not that. Right. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, relative to, to, to what you said, though, I remember uh, many, many years ago when I was a teaching associate, my colleague asked me to go into a room and look at somebody's piece, which was an installation. Okay, Those are the days when installations were fairly new. And I came out and he said, well, what do you think? And I said, I loved it. And I really did. Okay, I'm not going to describe it. I, I loved the piece. And I said, what did you think of it? He says, she didn't have an intention. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how interesting. <laughs> she did not have an intention. Naughty, naughty, naughty. But it was a beautiful piece, OK? I mean, beautiful in the sense of experience, not trying to impose the issue of beauty, mm. which is what beauty should be. Now, I like this show very much, I have to say because I think it's the space between the intentions. And uh, that space is important. It was important for Mondrian, and it was important for Alberto Morelli, who was part of the 
form a UNA group in Italy at the beginning of the 20th century. And Morelli did one of the first abstract paintings as early as 1912, preceding Malevich by a year. Okay? And I know that issue now has become a big deal with the Guggenheim show and so forth, and it should. But anyway, the point is that Morelli's later career is nothing about that kind of abstraction. And I remember going out of my way with a colleague in Italy and, and looking at some of that later work in his studio, which was not open to the public. And it had nothing to do with abstraction. What was he doing? You know something? I don't think it's important what he was doing. He was doing it. That's what's important. Okay? Now, I think we have to relieve ourselves of some of this theoretical jargon upon occasion in terms of trying to understand what something is that doesn't need a theory. It just needs an experience. We have to get back to the notion of experience, otherwise there will be no art. And I think with Glenn, we have this, okay? I really believe we have it. It's strange, bizarre in some places. You know, I think of, uh, you know, the flowers of Mondrian. You know, there were three times when he stopped painting those hard edge paintings. I'm not gonna use that word because that's not his word. Uh, uh, what is it, neoplasticist paintings. Okay, okay, that's what he used. Uh, there were three times he stopped doing those to, to paint flowers. Yves and Bois doesn't include that at all in his catalog. However, David Shapiro did a show of those and said this was necessary to his aesthetic. It was necessary to his aesthetic. That's all. That's important. It was necessary to his, uh, to his aesthetic. To his bank balance as well. <laughs> well. OK, I mean, we can get into that, but we get too much of that. OK. okay. Uh, but anyway, the point is that the space between intentions, I think, is where we get a chance to breathe, where we get a chance to relax, where we get a chance to feel the beach of the mind. OK? Right. And I think that's what he was trying to do in that show. Mm. Beautiful. I love that. Mm -hmm. Well, a panel, we've got just some time to hear your uh, thoughts on both Corman and Goldberg. Um, panel, I cut it again. Why, but the, the <laughs> Freudian slip. You, I, I hope our audience is extremely flattered that twice they've been referred to as the panel, <laughs> when in fact they are the audience. You're the ones paying, and well, you didn't pay anything, but still, <laughs> you're the audience. But anyway, audience, join the panel. Yes. I want to go back to the, uh, sharing the ecstasy around Harriet Corman's show. Um, I remember um, listening to Robert Ryman once talk about about three or four square inches of, of a Mondrian painting. And it was one of the most um, electric lectures I've ever heard, even delivered in Ryman's rather dry uh, delivery. But um, he went around the edge and just microscopically examined the surfaces. And what, I was at the opening, Harriet's uh, opening, and I was talking to a friend, and I kept looking over this person's shoulder to one of Harriet's paintings. And the, the painting came in and out of focus as I was trying to pay attention to my interlocutor, but at the same time look at this painting. And it, it kind of fell in and out of a gestalt. Um, my mind kept wanting to correct it back into a certain kind of symmetry. And of course, visually, I was getting a different read altogether. And, and in that little tension between my brain and, and what I was actually seeing, there was this, this utter charm and electricity that I just was completely beguiled by. 
Beautiful. Thank you very much. Yeah. You can see why one accidentally calls the audience the panel sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Again, the back row. Thank you. Ah, oh, it's a race to get uh, the, 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 the two microphones are racing to get right. to you. All uh, right, David, I think you said it's okay to make a comment, not necessarily uh, yeah, a question. Do. Is that okay? <laughs> I, I just want to kind of ask you or the panel this or even the audience. You know, as I watched this evening, I asked myself, what's contemporary here? What is, uh, what's urgent? What, what's important? What is, what is, in some way, this could be a sort of timeless conversation that we're hearing. It could be 20 years old. There's what, it's kind of shop talk. It, 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 where does art break the barrier of living or experience, the privilege of the term experience, but, and I'm not asking for anything historical or political or content per se at all. I'm just wondering, and I enjoy this immensely, so just don't, I, I really do. But to ask maybe the a panel who work, and probably much of this audience, in the field of art as artists or critics, what, well, what's the project here? What, what are we trying to do here? I would hope we have simply done it, but, um, <laughs> um, but, but uh, those are sal that's a salutary question, and, and one should periodically stop and look in the mirror and ask, why am I here? What am I doing? Where am I going? <laughs> um, I, I find it's useful to do that while you're shaving. But, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, thank you for that question slash comment. Um, it's, it, yeah. Uh, if I might say, I'm, I'm actually working on a book dealing with some of these issues. It's called, the well, the, the working title is The Synchronic Moment. I can't get into it tonight because it's too complex, but many of the issues that you're raising are going to be in this book. Okay. <laughs> I, I would point out also that we, um, probably the young, uh, maybe, I don't know, it's between Glenn and Penelope as to who is the youngest artist that we talked about, but both uh, Harriet and uh, Felidia are very mature. Um, uh, I hope they've both got quite a few years to go, but they're, they're people who can look back on a lifetime of making stuff. Uh, and, she's and 63. She's 63? Oh. I thought they were both, oh, it's Penelope. Penelope's 63. Yeah. The yeah. others are no, in their we're 70s, not talking about Penelope. I think. We're talking about Felidia and Philida and uh, Harriet as being maturer. So 63, and I think Delenn is probably late 50s. Is that right? Mm. Anyone know? Older? All right. Well, it'll be research. You know, the, the, the art world is too obsessed with age, in my opinion. It is a bit obsessed with age, but I think to the to the question that's being asked here, we we do sometimes on the, on the panel there are often kids that we're talking about, and, but these are all uh, very much grown ups uh, living within their practice, and it's a diverse group, which we is what we like to have. So. Um, Therefore, there may not be that urgency. Uh, I think it's about age, just to make that very clear. You seem to speak to that. But I'm not asking the question pertaining to anyone's age. It just simply it, it, it's, it's, it's right. Having just come from a full day of critiquing 21-year-olds, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to be with somebody that's <laughs> just, just for a little while, please. Yes. 
Okay. Um, Mike, has it come to you? Um, ben? Ben, yeah, you got it. Great. Oh, I just, I just thought it was interesting um, the way that you were all, I guess, to your question, talking about the way that things are constructed. So, the, like, the interaction between chroma, the interaction between um, kind of internal monologue um, object making, um, and then the, the the discussion of the of the installation of the sculpture. And to me, that the kind of space between the things and how they kind of form a whole is fascinating, you know, to me. And that creates an experience that goes beyond the individual qualities of, of the work. So that's my comment. Thank you. Fantastic. <laughs> Good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's, uh, friends, let's uh, go over the, um, take that short walk through the cold and get ourselves a glass of something. Uh, thank you very much, Brooklyn Public Library panelists. <laughs>